so uh, that is a mistake. And what I found is the problem is we often look to external things to fix our internal problems. Carrie Newhoff, the author of the new book, At Your Best. And before we hear more from Carrie Newhoff, let me tell you about uh, the sponsor for today's podcast, and that is our friends at the Mission Resource Network. Now, let me say something. You have a vital role in God's mission. MRN will help you fulfill it meaningfully. I've known these folks at MRN, Mission Resource Network, for many years. They know you have a burning desire to fulfill your calling, and they have some of the top people in the field of missions to help you. As you work to share the hope of Jesus with a broken world, the folks at MRN can help you overcome your most challenging missions problems, and that's not all. One of the best things they do, which I really appreciate, is their expertise in the field of missionary care. They know how to help you take care of the missionaries you send out as well as the families they leave behind. So do yourself, your missionaries, and your missions committee a favor. Reach out to MRN today at www.mrnet.org and get a free article, Avoiding the Missions Black Hole, by emailing missions at mrnet.org. That's missions at mrnet.org. Check them out. Uh, one more thing before we get to Carrie, I just want to say thanks again for everyone who helped out with uh, buying a copy of the book, Befriending Your Monsters. Uh, I, I had a, a huge shock when I looked on Amazon, and it was a, um, a number one on a couple of the lists, uh, Christianity and like self-growth. or Anyway, there was a couple of them that it was uh, very high on, and uh, that was a huge shock to me. I was uh, super appreciative. So um, if you didn't get a chance to get a copy of it for uh, the sale on the ebook, um, just go buy it and imagine that you're still getting it for cheaper. And that way you'll feel like you're getting a discount. Now, are you getting a discount? Not really. But if you tell yourself you are, then you're halfway to believing that you are getting a discount. Now, uh, none of that is actually good advice other than getting a copy of the book. And uh, <laughs> so, so do that. And if you have got a copy of the book, it would greatly help out if you went on Amazon and left a kind review. Um, that's just how people find the podcast, or excuse me, the, the book more. But also, if you leave a review for the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever, I don't know if you can leave a review on Spotify, but you should be able to. But uh, leaving a review for the podcast and the books helps uh, other people find it. So if you want to help out the book and or the podcast, um, leave a good review, and I'll be forever in your debt. So uh, here's the next podcast uh, that we have. It is Carrie Newhoff a uh, lovely gentleman from up north in Canada. Welcome back to the show. Today we have returning for the second time, Mr. Kerry Newhoff. How are you, sir? Second Olympics. Yep. I'm doing yep. great. How are yes. you doing, Luke? I, I'm, I'm doing well. My um, voice sounds like I'm going through puberty right now, but uh, have a little bit of a cold or something like that. So uh, I'm, I'm very excited for how masculine my voice sounds today. Well, yeah, that's always great. I'm at the end of the day, so mine always gets scratchy. So. Yeah. Well, I think this is going to be great, nevertheless. Um, well, you're back on the podcast uh, for a second time. Now, people might remember uh, last time we had an uh, like enthralling discussion about the difference between Texas laws and Canadian laws. And uh, Correct. So, so people need to like level set and remember not only like pastor, leadership guru, writer, but like you're a lawyer in Canada. I feel like, that, like everyone has to understand that to understand you. They have to start with that somewhere. There is, there's a legal mind there. You know, it's interesting because I barely did law. Like I finished law school, got called to the bar, only worked for a year in an actual law firm. But people used to ask me all the time when I left law, do you use your law? And I was like, no, because I'm not doing contracts. But 
I really look, I answer it differently now. I think I use it all the time because law school kicked my butt and it changed how I think about problems critically. And that's a skill set I use every day now. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I uh, am known for occasionally making jokes about accountants. Uh, my brother-in-law is an accountant at my previous yeah. church. There was like an inordinate inordinate amount of accountants. And so I just developed this, like, let's make fun of accounting. It's a great job, stable. You get paid well. You're always going to have a job. Like, I feel like it's a good target to go after. And people come up to me and say, how come you don't make fun of lawyers? And I go, well, in a, in another life, I'm very easily a lawyer. I think many pastors have a similar skill set, like where you have a text, you learn it, you engage with people, you make oral arguments. Like, it, it seems like it makes perfect sense. Well, and everyone else is making fun of the lawyers. So why would you do that? Just make yeah. fun of accountants, right? Yeah, I think that kind of adds up. You're right. It is, a, it is a parallel skill set. If you, if you are an advocate, if you're on the barrister side, the British would say, and you like to be in court, if you're on the solicitor side and you're doing contracts, that's a different skill set. But I was definitely on the courtroom side. Yeah, I like, the, I like those fancy words. Love litigation. You did? Barrister and solicitor. Wow, that's... British. Mm-hmm. That's fancy. That's fancy. Okay. Um, before we go any further into discussions about law, which I'm going to be completely out of my depth, I want to talk about your new book. The title is At Your Best, How to Get Time, Energy, and Priorities Working in Your Favor. That's like, that's like it's a good title. Like, who, who doesn't mm-hmm. want to be at their best? Like, I feel like every one of us wants to be there. Well, thank you. We went through 79 titles, so I'm glad the final one actually worked. That's, that's one of the hardest parts. What was, what was it? Okay, what are we going to call this thing? What was the working title that you had when you were just like scratching the ideas out by yourself? Oh gosh, we had like 18. Um, it started as numb. I really like numb. I thought I was writing a burnout book and it's not a burnout book. It's a how to stay out of burnout book and yeah. how to never get into burnout book. But I was originally going to call it numb and then everyone thought that was too negative. And then we called it beating burnout and I thought that was too narrow so then it was this much stress is not okay, which is now a segment. I'll see if I can, what else do we call it? Um, I was talking to John Mark Comer. He wanted to call his new book, The World, the Flesh, and the Devil. And that got like nixed. So now it's called Live No Lies. Uh, anyway, it's a great book. And uh, what else? It went through, oh, I wanted to call it Time Wealth. I thought that was great. Like, wouldn't you like to be wealthy in time, Time Wealth? Like that's, and that's, then it was like, yawn. and then we called it, do what you're best at when you're at your best. And my audience went, are you stupid? Do you know how many words there are in that? And no one can remember that. So then we came up with at your best. Let's I don't know. About- and we probably deleted like 18 titles in there. Yeah. I like that is a tough part of writing. Um, but you, you initially thought it was burnout is what you're writing about, which you address in the book. You talk about mm-hmm. it. Um, you obviously like had your experience with burnout. What made you think like initially this is what people needed to to hear about? Well, I thought I would describe burnout and the problem and how to get out of it. And then, you know, books take on a life of their own. And I just ended up getting really passionate about the solution over the problem. And so there's a little bit like we dip our toe into the kiddie pool on burnout. Just like, hey, here's how to know if you're burned out. I got a diagnostic test that people can take. Uh, not a doctor, but this will just, you know, anecdotally help you know whether you're healthy or not. And and I mean, the stats now show 70 to 90 percent of people would experience burnout system uh, symptoms in a typical year. So it's a pretty big audience. But I'm really committed to like, let's get you out and let's make sure you never go there again or never go there, period. Right. So that's what the book ended ended up being about. And 
I'm really passionate about it because there's so many books that do a good job of describing the problem, but there's like two tips at the end for a solution. So this is like mostly solution. Yeah, yeah. And that's how I, I felt it too. Now I've had two conversations probably in the last couple of weeks that are specifically addressed in this book. So I'm going to get you to coach me up on how to have these conversations better Good. in the future. Now, specifically the conversation about burnout was front and center in a conversation not too long ago. A person who fit the demographic that you described in the book. Uh, burnout typically happens late thirties. Is that what you're saying? Or often? Yeah, I thought so. And what I've learned is like even early 20s, I've had 23-year-olds who are burned out, 25-year-olds, 56-year-olds. But typically, the midlife crisis that often hits between 38 and 42 is very, very similar to burnout for okay, a lot so, of people. So if people haven't taken your test, which they can find online, um, give us a few of the symptoms of burnout. So one would be your passion is gone. Most, because this is a leadership thing. Most leaders are pretty passionate people. Going to light the world on fire when you're in your teens and 20s. And then somewhere along the way, you just, you just stop caring and you feel kind of numb, which is where that first title came from, right? So that, that's one symptom. Your passion's gone. Another is that your emotions aren't working properly. So you should be in a place where if good things happen, you feel really happy. And if bad things happen, you feel sad a lot of people end up in a place where they feel neither. So you tell me something really sad and I'm like, oh, that's too bad, Luke. But it's all muscle memory. I'm not feeling anything inside. I'm numb. Or if you tell me really good news, like, man, I just you know landed my dream job or we're pregnant and we're so excited. And I'm like, great. But on the inside, it's like, eh. We, that, that's a sign. So feeling numb all the time. Um, inappropriate emotions. So if you ask your eight-year-old to clean up her room and she doesn't do it and which is pretty typical for a kid and that's a three out of ten problem you go in and have a nuclear meltdown that is a sign that something is off another is that you're self-medicating so whether that's alcohol or drugs or improperly taking prescription medication or um, sometimes overworking, right? If you're not going to drink or do drugs, you just go back to work. So the thing that made you sick is what you're using to try to get better or uh, ignore your problems. And then um, another sign of self-medication would, would be like some kind of addiction, whether that's a sex addiction or dysfunction or um, even overeating, which happens a lot particularly in Christian circles, right? Okay, we're not going to do drugs. We're not going to smoke weed. We're not going to get drunk. So we'll just go to the all-you-can-eat buffet and do just that. That emotional eating can be a sign. And then finally, that sleep and rest no longer refuel you. So what's supposed to happen when you sleep, and a lot of people struggle to sleep these days, is you're tired, you worked really hard, that's normal. Go to bed early, you feel a bit better tomorrow. Go to bed on time again the next night. And you're, you're back to normal. And what a lot of people find, and this is what I found when I burned out, I would like sleep for 11 hours and I wouldn't feel better the next day. And then I'd take a week off and I wouldn't feel better. So sleep and rest are no longer refueling you. Then you probably got a pretty serious case of burnout. Hmm. Okay. So this happens. You find yourself in that situation. You're, you're asking these questions like, what am I doing with my life? This doesn't make sense. I don't really care about this anymore. Um, but if, if you're that, it, maybe not 23, but if you're 42... Um, and you've already like accrued years in an industry and you're going a direction and you've got some win wins underneath your belt, it would be very difficult for you to jump into another profession 
and uh, like you, you talk about uh, your grass is greener metaphor or uh, like idea is like a warehouse job right. where there is some of um, the complexity of your job wouldn't be found over there. Obviously, there would be different complexities, but in that moment, like you think, okay, this will just be better. And so for some of us, you go, okay, well, I'm going to imagine a life in this other career, but I, I've already gone this far. I make this much money. I've, I've built up this sort of like CV that I can't replicate in another industry, so I can't do that, so I feel kind of stuck. Um, if this is where I am, where do you start? Like pointing me in the right direction. Mm. Well, I'm glad you raised the career change idea because that is a terrible idea when you're burned out, right? It's like, oh, well, maybe I need a new marriage. So I'm going to divorce you and, and find someone new, or I'm going to switch careers. Or if you're a pastor, I'm going to go to another church. Or if you're, uh, you know, in the marketplace, I'm going to switch companies or I'm going to start something new. It's like, if you have marriage problems, oh, why don't we have a baby? Maybe that'll fix it. It's like, no, you want to make it more complicated to have a baby, right? So uh, that is a mistake. And what I found is the problem is we often look to external things to fix our internal problem. My new job will make me feel better. A new relationship will make me feel better. A new career will make me feel better. And the problem with that is you bring you into everything that you do. So if you're living at an unsustainable pace, if you are living in a way today that will make you struggle tomorrow, moving to a new job, you take all your habits, all your rhythms, all your approaches to time, energy, and priorities into that new job with you. And then you're like right back where you started. Yeah. You have the honeymoon period. First month was great. Second month was great. You're in a new city, new job. Everything's awesome. And then you're like, womp, it's back. So I think the much better thing is to stay where you are, get healthy. And then when you're feeling better, you'll know whether it's your job or whether it was you. It turned out it was me. It wasn't my job. Yeah. Nothing wrong with my job. It was me. I wasn't healthy. I had unsustainable rhythms, an unsustainable pace. I had time, energy, and priorities working against me. And that would have followed me anywhere I went and probably been worse because when you run from your problems, um, you really, really struggle to solve them because you keep thinking, it's not me, it's you. It's not me, it's the job. It's not me, it's the city. It was me. Yeah. And so if we think about like jumping to some other greener grass pasture that we think will like placate all the problems that we have in our life. We get there and we realize, no, no, I brought myself, I am the problem here. Um, okay. And then we realize, okay, I, I've got to change myself. For you, you had this like big turn and things broke so much better for you on the other side of it. Uh, like everything was up and to the right mm -hmm. after you made this change. Uh, for some of us who go, okay, well, I, I can't even imagine making that change because my unsustainable pace seems like it's necessitated by my job the frustration just seems to be par for the course for this line of work or, you know, my marriage is just like this. My, my, my partner is not going to change anything. So I, like all the stuff around me seems to be the issue, not me. How, how do I start to see myself as part of the problem in those equations? Well, to channel Henry cloud, you are ridiculously in control of your life. So let's do a little bit of math. Let's say you hate your job. Okay. It's like, I just hate work. Okay. So work is what? 40 hours a week for argument's sake. Maybe it's more, sure. maybe it's a bit less. We'll just pick 40 hours a week. Mathematically, that leaves you with 128 other hours that you are 100% in charge of. And what are you going to do with those hours? How are you going to invest them so they produce a better return? And then if you break down work a little bit further, this is, this is the interesting part, Luke. 
is uh, you talk to people who are in office jobs. So if you work at Starbucks or a coffee shop, yeah, your 40 hours are prescribed. You're slinging macchiatos all day. Okay, so that's what you're doing. But if you work in an office environment like you do or I do, you have a ridiculous amount of control even over those 40 hours. So uh, when I coach leaders in this, I ask them, how much of those 40 hours is spoken for? In other words, you have to be at the leadership team meeting Tuesday at 10. You have to be at this place at this time. In other words, you have no control. I just got to show up here. And what's shocking is most leaders have never thought about it and they realize it's not a lot of time. It's like 10 hours a week, 12 hours a week. I think the most I actually heard, and I've, I've asked hundreds of leaders this question, is that maybe people would spend 12 to 15 hours a week in meetings. But let's say for argument's sake, you have a different job. It's like 20 hours a week in meetings. Do the math on that. 20 out of your 168 hours is spoken for. That means you have control over 88% of your week every week. Mm-hmm. And people say, well, we have soccer practice Tuesday night and we have church on Sunday. We whoa, whoa, whoa. Great. Those are all good things, but those are choices. You didn't have to enroll the kids in soccer. You didn't have to decide that every Friday night you're going to do X. Um, and so when I realized I was in ridiculously like in control of my life and being a CEO, I probably have a little more control over those 10 to 12 hours than most people do, but still I had control over 88%. If I got time, energy, and priorities working differently in my life, I could change how I saw everything else. So that's where I would start with that one. It's like you're less of a victim than you think you are. Hmm. Why do we need to eradicate the victim mentality as it pertains to like our calling and burnout? What is the connection between being a victim and, and feeling like you're burnt out? Well, you don't have to. I mean, you can play that card until you're 90 and hope it was a nice life and enjoy yourself. But I don't know. I, I played that game and I played it with the way I approach time. So what I told myself, this is my fifth book. What I told myself all through my 30s is I want to write a book. I want to write a book. I just don't have the time to write a book. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I didn't have the time because I was raising two young kids Uh, The church was growing like crazy. I didn't know how to lead a team. We were hiring staff all the time. There were new people every week. And I was just slammed. And uh, one day I caught myself. I I was thinking about, should I write a book? And I said, I just don't have the time for that. And I had this insight. I think it was God-given where it's like, you have the same amount of time as every other human being on planet Earth. In fact, you have the same amount of time as the president of the United States, as the CEO of a Fortune 50 company, as anybody, you know, Mother Teresa, she changed the world. You have as much time as Mother Teresa. And it was very sobering for me because for years I told myself, well, I don't have the time or I can't do that. And I made a little resolution that day, Luke, to, I promised myself that I would never say, I don't have the time for that again. And I started auditing my vocabulary. Stuff like, oh, sorry, I can't do that. Well, actually, you could. Maybe I can't climb Mount Everest yet. Maybe I can't do that. But I could get the report in on time. Or, uh, yeah, sorry, I didn't get a chance to. No, I had a chance to. I had a chance to work out. I didn't take it. I had the time to write a book. I didn't make it. I had the time to work out. I didn't do it. When I get that honest with myself, 
that's when it really started to turn around and I'm like, oh, I could write a book. And so in the last 11 years, I've written five of them. Yeah. And yeah. led way more than I did at the time I was burning out. Yeah. yeah. You have the line in the book of saying, stop saying you don't have time. And I think that's just a, a, a great line for everyone. I, I remember hearing uh, mm -hmm. uh, someone uh, a couple years ago talk about how they didn't have time to dedicate to their health. I, I just don't have time. I don't have time to dedi dedicate to my health. And for this person, it was a pretty well, substantial... Well, now you'll have less time, well, right? Well, the, the way the story ends up is a couple of years later, they're having to do a, a drastic uh, procedure to change their life. And so they didn't make time for their health, but their health intruded into their time and said, no, you're going to take time for it right now. And it was like everything had to come to a complete stop because they didn't make time for it. And the thing is, I, I think it's easy to go, I don't have time to do this. And uh, when I... To go back to writing, uh, you referenced Stephen Pressfield in the book. You have one of his quotes. And when I was in my early 30s, I read uh, The War of Art, which is one of my favorite books. It's, it's the reason I started writing books. Mm. And I started writing 500 words a day. And his whole uh, premise about the muse shows up for those who show up was life-changing to me. It changed my, the way I schedule my life. Uh, we'll eventually probably get into the Thrive Cycle and Green Zones, uh, your language for some yeah, of yeah. The, those concepts. But for me, it's like first thing of the day, do the hardest thing, writing for me, writing sermons, all that was always the hardest, put them at the beginning. And it changed my life because you, you create patterns that are sustainable and that create the best results for me. Um, but when I first started preaching, I, I never could even finish my sermon in time to have a, a Sabbath on Friday. And so I was finishing my sermons <laughs> late, late in the week. And now I'm at the point where, I, um, like I went to my office today, uh, this past week I was sick. I'd actually call in Sunday morning, never done that before, but with COVID and all that, taking some precautions. But I go in my office this week after not preaching last Sunday and I have like my, my next four sermons already completely written. My next five are all etched out after that. Um, and all this happened because like I moved past this victim mentality about, oh, I can't control this. I can't get ahead. I can't do enough. And instead I started being the master of my own universe, which is the stuff you're writing back about in the book, which is I think so helpful for so many of us. I'm so glad to hear you say that, Luke. And you're so right. Like some of the stuff I'm saying, it isn't new. I mean, we've known this for a long time. I put it together in a system that works for me. You've got a system that works for you. And it's amazing to see what can happen when you dump the victim mentality. So you're right. Stop saying you didn't make the time. Start admitting that, or stop saying you didn't um, have the time. Yeah. Start admitting that you didn't make that. That's sort of the key. Yeah. And, you know, so I, I, I found the same thing. When I started doing what I was best at, when I was at my best and I'm best in the morning, and I'm also, the work that I do is communication work, strategy work, team building. When I move that into what I call the green zone, those best hours of the day, you only have a few. When I started doing that, that's where, like you, I started to see exponential returns. Yeah, and it's being able to name that. And I think self-awareness is essential. And I, I, I like the language you put on. It kind of helps flesh out some of the stuff that's I've kind of had in my head in more like an ambiguous way, ambiguous way, but like it really fleshes out in a very helpful way. But part of the reason that that's easy for me uh, to create these systems is that I feel like my my calling and my passion seem very similar. And the work that I get to do for me seems like, man, I'm super passionate about writing sermons. I love preaching and I get paid to do that. And like, I don't want to tell my church this, but I would do this for free. And it just happens to be that you guys give me a paycheck. I would like, I'm, I will lie if you ask me, no, I'm not gonna really do it for free, but I, I really would. Cause I love to do it, but not everyone has the thing that they're most passionate about. Also the thing that they get, uh, 
to do for a living. And so help me understand like the difference of like passions, which you describe as like your passions, what you love to do, what gives you energy and what you have to do to get a paycheck. How, how do you like bring those two concepts together when they're not the same like me? Well, the three line up beautifully. I got a whole section in at your best about it, but let me walk you through it real quick. Um, most people, and I'm talking to knowledge workers here. Again, if you work at a factory, um, this can help redeem your free time. But yeah, you get to the factory, you stand at the machine, this machine, you do what you're supposed to do, what your boss tells you to do. I get that. But for knowledge workers in an office environment, it's a bit different. You have different areas of your job. And even if you're a founder, there are parts of your job you like and parts of your life, your job you don't like. There are parts that give you energy and there are aspects that don't give you energy. And you have some wiggle room. You have some discretion. So I found out when I was in law, I really love being in court. I really love prepping for court. I really like helping my client win. And so what I did was I would get into the office early and I would start early on my cases. And um, I didn't have to because there was a stack of memos and emails from bosses that, you know, try this or try that. But I knew if I won in court, that was a lever that just seemed to turn everything. So I would really prep. What really surprised me is when I got to court, I was a junior guy. I was straight out of law school. Um, so many of the lawyers who were five, 10 years my senior would show up overwhelmed and unprepared. And they would be in court and they'd be like, well, Your Honor, uh, my client, Mr. Noseson, oh, sorry, Noseworthy, uh, didn't even know the name of their client. Uh, yeah, he... Um, he, uh, he was, he was uh, walking across the street when he was struck by a vehicle and like just bobbled the ball. Didn't even know. They're reading from their notes. They're, you know, the judge is correcting them. I show up. I prepared the day before. I prepared that morning. It's like, Your Honor, here's the case. Da, 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 da. Well, who's the, who's the judge going to listen to more? The person who's prepared. And I would use my green zone hours, my best hours to prepare for court. I won all but two cases that year. One was totally my fault. One was, I would argue, unwinnable. Um, all that was was showing up prepared and eventually becomes a superpower. So I enjoyed that. And it was a leverage point for the firm because when you win your cases, you have happy clients. And you might say, well, isn't that unethical? Like, why did you win all your cases? What if the guy... And it's like, that's not my job. My job as a lawyer is to give my client the best day in court. The judge's job is to figure out who's, who's right. And so the judge did that, but I, I, I won them all. At the end of the day, speaking of making a dollar, uh, so this is even more interesting. There were two students that year, a, uh, a classmate of mine from Osgood and myself. I did not play the work all night, work all weekend game because I was newly married. We were expecting our first son. We had him halfway through my year in law. Uh, I wanted to be home, wanted to be a dad. So I would get into the office at 7 a.m., get up early before daylight in the winter, get, get in at 7 a.m., and I would leave. I would sneak out at 4.30. All the lawyers were there till 6 or 7, and I'd sneak out. You know, The legal assistants would be leaving at 4.30. I'd sneak into the elevator with them and head down. But nobody ever asked me about it, and I'm like, okay. And then people would work Saturdays. I just never came in. Didn't say I'm not working Saturdays. I just never came in. But I did all my prep, won my cases. At the end of the year, so the other student, he didn't. He got there at 8 a.m. and stayed till midnight, worked Saturdays, some Sundays. He was exhausted. He was tired. At the end of the year, my boss pulled me in, took me out for lunch. He goes, Carrie, he says, this is unbelievable. He says, students always lose us money. We hate them. 
He says, you made us $100,000 this year. And he said, here's your starting salary. Do you want to rethink seminary? Like, what are you even doing there? Just come to work for us at this law firm. I'm like, no, I'm going to seminary. And what happened, I felt really bad about it. They fired the other guy. Hmm. And they offered me a pile of money. And I worked half the hours he did. And all that was, was exactly what you're saying. So I'm low guy on the totem pole. I have no authority. I have no, but I'm, I'm figuring it out. Okay. If I, I enjoy courtroom work, so I'm going to gravitate to that. I'm going to take all the cases. You need someone in court. I'll go, I'll go shoot me the file. Give me some advance. Okay. I'm going to work on it. I'm going to prep. I'm going to win the case. And at the end of the day, working about 45 hours a week, they offered me a full-time job and a very significant pay uh, salary. And I said no and went to seminary and chose a different route. But and I think that's how it can work. So what are you good at? What is going to get a big return for your firm? And um, what seems to be succeeding? Do that. And you'll enjoy your job. I love mine. Yeah. And, and I'm very grateful for mine for that very reason. It's the thing that I, I, I would do for free. Um, but I get paid for it. But what would you say to someone else who um, has a sort of nine to five job, which pays the bills, but the thing that they're most passionate about that they would love to be able to do, which they can't turn into a career is something they have to do on the side. Yeah. So the first thing I'd say about the nine to five job is listen to Seth Godin and don't do what you love, love what you do. What is it about your job? And again, I'll walk you through this in the book. But what is it about your job that you really do enjoy? So for me, I don't enjoy expense reports. So I could spend hours doing expense reports, but we have an accounting department. So I do the minimum amount of time I need on expense reports. I really love writing content. So in your job, what is the equivalent for you of writing content? And if that content is something that can, or whatever that is, let's say it's sales calls. Let's say it's um, customer service. Find out the part you really like about it and do more of that and, and get it to do an ROI for your employer. And I think you'll enjoy that more. But second, what I would say is get very good at what you do. Because again, if you're just paid on the clock, you need to put in your 40 hours. Great. Okay. You still have 128 hours left in uh, the week that you can use as you want. But second, if you can flex a little bit, like I wasn't working 70, 80 hours a week, like most lawyers, I was getting out in normal hours that would be required in a lot less demanding position. If you get better at your job, um, then you can get off earlier or come in a little bit later. And then I would look at your best hours in the day. If you're a night owl, it's in the evening. If you're a morning person like you are and I am, Luke, it would be in the morning. And then say, okay, what can I get done before work, before I'm on the clock? Because mornings don't cost you a lot. It's not like a whole family is sitting around having a big old breakfast. You know, where are you? It's like mornings are kind of catch as catch can, put the kids on the bus, whatever. And so what I did when I was still lead pastor of a church was after I burned out, I realized I needed a hobby. And I'm like, well, what is going to give me joy? I said, well, I enjoy writing. Maybe I'll start a blog. Okay, so I started a blog. And then people showed up and then I started a podcast in my spare time, which I did on Fridays, my day off originally. And then lots of people showed up and surprise, surprise, fast forward a few years. I'm no longer the pastor of a local church, but this thing I started as my side hustle is now a full-time job that has eight full-time employees. It's like, it's amazing. It just became this huge thing that I never would have thought but that started as a side hustle that was basically two hours in the morning, four or five days a week. Hmm. 
So you, you keep talking in the book about like the importance of hobbies. And like for you, the hobby was blogging, podcasting. And, and for you, that became like an actual source of income, like a, a, your livelihood. Mm-hmm. For most people, Wh- like Which is when it stopped becoming a hobby. I've about said like when it, it becomes your paycheck, it's no longer a hobby. Do you, have you replicated or uh, replaced it with other hobbies? Yeah, I have actually. And, and that's really important. Uh, I think you've had Annie F. Downs on your podcast. Annie talks about this a lot. Uh, Annie, Annie says everybody needs a hobby and most leaders don't have one. And that's something I intuitively picked up 15 years ago when I burned out because I had no hobbies because I had no life. You know, I'm a pastor. I work 90 hours a week. Like, leave me alone. And so, yeah, when, when it started to pay, I'm like, this is no longer a hobby. This is work, even though I enjoy it. So I picked up three. I experimented with photography, with a bunch of other stuff, but the ones that have stuck are cycling, mm-hmm. um, barbecue, and boating. So I call them the three Bs, biking, barbecue, and boating. And they all work. I do running in the winter, but that feels like work. So cycling is fun for me. We live near a lake, so we have a canoe, we have paddle boards, we have a, a, a 20-foot bow rider. And then uh, I really enjoy big green eggs, so I do a lot of barbecue. And those are life-giving. Those are really good things. They're often social. Went on a big group ride on Saturday. You know, we have friends out on the boat. We have people over for dinner, for barbecue. And, um, and I just really enjoy it. And, and when I'm on the water, I didn't really have this because most of what, what, what a lot of your listeners would do is cognitive work, right? So you're sitting there trying to relax on your back porch. And you're like, I'm thinking about my sermon. I'm thinking about this problem. I'm thinking about this team member. You got to find something that distracts you. Like what recipe fully engrosses you on your big green egg? Or when you're cycling, what are you listening to musically or audiobook wise? Or, you know, on the boat, I don't care. I can be 40 feet from shore. I'm in another world. Like it is just something you leave your troubles on the shore and you're just out there on the water and it's beautiful. You're with friends, you're with family. So those are the kinds of hobbies for some people. It's photography. It could be sailing. I have a friend who's scuba diving right now. You know, those aren't my hobbies, but what is going to engross you to the point where you're not just sitting there thinking about what you're not doing at work? Yeah. That's a hobby. No, I, I think you're spot on. And I think Annie's spot on when she talks about that. It's, uh, I picked up a hobby of martial arts about a year and a half ago and like uh, doing practicing oh, wow. jiu-jitsu. Um, like you, you can't think about anything else. And I think that is like the big, uh, the big thing for me is like, if you're engrossed in, you know, cooking or on the boat or whatever, like, or someone's trying to choke you or you're trying to choke your friends, like you, you can't be thinking about a sermon or a problem at work when you're like, Oh, this dude's like trying to kill me. Um, because like yeah. that for me is the central part of a hobby is that it, it turns off the part of your brain that you use for work. And yeah, I think hobbies are essential for that. The, uh, yeah. And I think that's why sitting in the living room or on the back porch, we all suck and we eventually open up our phones or our laptops and we start working again. And it's like, you got to stop that. You got to stop that. Yeah, no, exactly. I also like to, uh, um, my typical like Friday sabbatical routine is work out, uh, take a nap, go to jujitsu. And then like, I'll have my paddleboard in the back of my truck when I go to class and then I'll go down the lake and paddleboard for an hour or something. And like, they're all, uh, things I like to do that are disconnected from my phone that I'm not going to like, uh, well, let me check Twitter, see what's going on there to in, engage. But uh, yeah, I think those are spot on, super important. Um, uh, one of the things that you also talk about in the book is the power of saying no. And uh, mm-hmm. you have a line, no one, uh, nobody will ever ask you to accomplish your top priorities. They will only ask you to accomplish theirs. That's really strong. 
That's extremely strong. And now you're going to say, like, you, we do the same thing for other people, so it's not like other people are bad and we're good. But how come, like, w- when you're a pastor, how come no one's asking you to accomplish your top priority of, like, say, writing sermons? Why, don't, why do you think no one is asking yeah. you that? How many phone calls do you get or texts do you get? It's like, hey, man, I'm going to cancel lunch with you so you can do a killer sermon this Sunday. Never, right? Or somebody who's having a personal pastoral emergency calls you and it's like, you know what? I'm grieving right now, but just leave me alone. Go get your message done. Like, that's so weird. We don't even think about it, but it never happens. So if you are not devoting time like you've learned to over the last few years for your sermon, nobody else will. And it, it hit me, you know, when I lived in those years of overwhelm, I was overwhelmed, overworked, overcommitted. That, and, and think about how much it's changed. Like, now people have access to you 24-7. So when I started ministry in the 90s, there was this wonderful thing called the home phone and the church phone because nobody had cell phones. That was great. Occasionally people called me at home and then there was call display and all that. Well, now you got a device in your pocket and in your messenger bag and everywhere else where people... And then, you, you know, I counted up my inboxes. I have 11 inboxes. That is stupid. You should not have that many inboxes, but every social media platform has an inbox. You may have several email addresses. Uh, LinkedIn has an inbox. So literally there's a barrage of people trying to contact you every day, plus the knocks on the door, plus the, hey, can you on Sunday morning? And what every time that happens, someone is asking you to accomplish their priority, not yours. No wonder you're exhausted. And um, you have to figure out a way to sort through that. And this is why, you know, and we've all had those days. You look at Tuesday. Let's pick on Tuesday. Okay, Tuesday, you're like, oh, no appointments. Got a blank calendar. This is going to be awesome. I'm going to get everything done. You get a long to-do list. You get in the office early, 7 a.m. You're like, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. You get to 4.30 in the afternoon. You've got nothing crossed off your to-do list. You worked hard. You didn't goof off. You got nothing done. What happened? Well, you got 17 text messages and 46 emails and five knocks at the door and a couple of phone calls and staff who needed this and staff who needed that. So you worked all day. You got nothing done. Now your to-do list is longer and you go home. And who pays the price for that? Your family, your kids, if you're a parent. And, um, you know, blank space on a calendar is a trap. It looks like freedom, but it's actually jail disguised as liberty. So you're like, awesome day. And then it blows up in your face. So that's why I think it's so important to schedule like green, yellow, red zones. Reds when you're tired. Yellow is sort of that medium energy. Green when you're feeling great. Do your most important work in your green zone. For me, that's early in the morning. For you, that's early in the morning. And then when that's done, you can respond to the other emergencies around you. But most people invert it. And they just start wherever somebody told them to start. Oh, I got to clean out my inbox. Oh, I got to answer this text. Oh, I got to do this. Meanwhile, your sermon's not done. Your Sabbath is coming up and Sunday's coming. And it feels like you got hit by a truck and your family's mad at you because you've squandered another day off. Yeah. Yeah, you're exactly right. There's the old adage that uh, someone else's emergency isn't your urgency. And when we live mm-hmm. based on everyone else's emergencies, all of a sudden things that are most urgent for you get put on the back burner. And I, I love the way you describe it because if, if I don't come home Thursday with my work done, with the sermon done, with everything completed, then all of a sudden Friday, Saturday with my family, it's, it's no longer uh, available to me. And I, like I can't be there. For, and obviously there are times yeah. that you have to do that, of course. And you, you know that. You've probably lived that for uh, sure. much longer than I did. But 
when it's week in and week out, like that's the norm, like there's a, that's a big red flag. And, um, let them, let them be exceptions to the rule. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, I'm super grateful, uh, for the way you wrote wrote about that. That's been, uh, this has changed my life drastically. This whole like, uh, approach, which in a lot of ways you're describing in your book, um, to the point where like I, in six years of my church in Austin, like I can't remember outside of like a COVID thing, which just like changed our Sunday schedule, uh, like last minute, like there hasn't been a, a Thursday that I haven't left work without my sermon. Like it just hasn't happened. And so like that comes very natural to me, but let me tell you something that you write about that I'm, I'm awful about. Um, when things don't go as you schedule them, you've got the, uh, the quote, it's a military ax- axiom where, uh, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. Uh, Mike Tyson's version of that is, uh, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Um, yeah. I like, I'm really good when my schedule goes the way I want, when I can like, this is my green zone time. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to accomplish. But when like it, it goes sideways and things get like off schedule, like I fall apart. How would you coach me up on how to make peace with, uh, your green zone all of a sudden being taken away from you and things don't get done. And all of a sudden you are way behind the eight ball and you don't know what to do. Well, a few ideas, one, one observation. So, uh, you know, the people who I've trained in this and I've been teaching this for a couple of years, first time it's in book form. So I'm pretty excited for that. But as I've trained, well, thousands of leaders in this material, everyone gets excited about the green zone idea, doing what you're best at when you're at your best. Cause it does produce, as you said, your great witness, exponential results. When people do that, it's huge, but it's a great theory And so it's time, energy, and priorities. And what I thought is priorities would be like one chapter at the end. It's the biggest section of the book because I got more and more into the content and more and more into like trying to solve actual problems. I realized, okay, everyone has this great theory. Then you get punched in the face. Then you have contact with the enemy. So there's a couple of things. Number one, people are probably your biggest distraction because particularly if you're in ministry, theoretically, you care about people. And people tend to have emergencies. And the bigger your church, the more emergencies you have, right? And even, you know, I've led a small church and a big church. Small church, you have 50 people. It's like, well, they come to you for everything. I have a hangnail today. And you're like, okay, go over and pray for your hangnail, whatever. And then, you know, unfortunately, when you have a large church, there are legitimate crises that happen on a regular basis. So what do you do with people? Think about who you're spending your time with, first of all. Um, And then are you the best person to respond to all those crises? A lot of people, particularly when you're between 200 and 1,000 in your church, you don't really, and that's attendance numbers, which is a lot of churches, you normally don't have a system for pastoral care. What you have is a crisis plan. And so everything tends to trickle up to the lead pastor or to the staff. And so people are hitting you up on a regular basis for pastoral care. So you got to think about systematizing that. And what happens, and this is the painful price, is the wrong people always want your time and the right people never get your time. So that we, we all have frequent flyers in our church or organization, let's be honest, right? They're the people who are always in a crisis or you counsel them in their marriage last time. You're meeting with them again this month. So do you do the homework? No, we didn't do the homework. We were too busy. But we really want you to solve our marriage. It's like, ugh. They are not being helped. John Townsend says those people have a flat learning curve and you have people with flat learning curves. Okay, your time invested in them is not helping them and it's certainly not helping you. You go into those meetings, it's a low performing staff member. You were late for the meeting again. I know I was late. I'm so sorry. I won't be late again next week. Hey, dude, you were still late for the meeting. I know. I'm so sorry. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're not helping them. 
They're not getting help. Why are you doing this? So you need to cut some of that out of your life. So I got strategies for that. Then your best performers, like, I don't know, I'm not going to ask you this. This isn't a serious question. It's rhetorical. Your best donor at your church, you probably haven't met with in a long time. Why? Because they never complain. They never ask for your time. They just quietly, generously donate. Your top staff member probably would love a lunch with you, but you're too busy because you're dealing with some guy whose problem you'll never solve. And what happens when you meet with your top donor, when you meet with your top staff members, when you meet with your top volunteers, you leave energized, they leave energized. And, you know, all of a sudden they're like, you know what? I'm going to do more. You ask me to do something, I'm going to step up. And everybody wins. It's this virtuous loop. So th- there's a whole chapter on people, which we could get into. The second thing is you probably can, can overscheduled your week. Let, so let me interrupt thing- let me yep, interrupt. Talk about the people, though, uh, and then we'll go to schedule. The line you have about yep. people is uh, these drama queens or drama kings, as you call them in the book. They want to meet with you, but honestly, don't need to because it won't be of much value to them or to you. Like that line about it's not valued, obviously not to you, but not to them either. Like that was really meaningful to me because it's not like oh, these people are just the yeah. extra grace required people, but it's actually no one's being helped by this. You're just facilitating the same drama to be perpetuated more and more. That's the flat learning curve, right? And so think about this. There are some people who are just going to be like, they're going to be stuck in their marriage for 40 years. Okay. So you're not, you're not helping them. There are other people who will get help, but what if you're not the right person? So I only have two kids. I have two great kids. They're in their twenties now, but you know, there've been seasons as a parent where I have been the better voice in one of my son's life. And then other seasons where my wife has been a better influence on them because they see me and they kind of roll their eyes and they're like, oh, dad, but they'll talk to mom. And so maybe there's someone else on your staff or maybe there's a highly trained counselor who can actually facilitate this person to a breakthrough where they're no longer the drama king or the drama queen or where the marriage actually gets fixed. But if you if you're with somebody and you've met with them two or three times because that's what you do and they're not growing it's probably not a healthy relationship. You're not helping them. And a lot of us get into that, well, it's part of my job. I have to do that. And I can't say no. No, you can say no. And you're not actually helping them. And if you, if you let them know, I have a counselor I've used for years and he says, Carrie, how has this time, how has this been a good use of your time today? And that's interesting. I think he asked me that question for me, but I also think he asks that question for himself. Hmm. Because if I stop saying, if I say his name's Craig, if I start saying, well, Craig, hasn't been helpful for me at all today. Um, you know, he, he needs my $100 less than he needs that hour of his life back. And if he's not helping me, why am I going? And why is he seeing me? So there are times where that relationship just isn't healthy anymore. But if it is producing progress and traction, then you're no longer in a draining relationship. But a lot of leaders forget that. In you know, the, the good motivation in this, this is a little tough talk. I'm in Enneagram 8. But the good motivation in this is most church leaders just have a great heart. They have a really big heart. And they're like, well, I'm going to keep meeting with these people. Everybody else gave up on you. I'm not going to give up on you. You're not giving up on them. You're just not helping them. So why are you doing it? And it's coming at a price. If you had an endless amount of time every day, that's great. Because you do 98 hours of counseling on a Tuesday, and then you go home to your family and have lots of energy left over for them. But it never works that way. You had a bunch of meetings, Then you have this really draining session. You pull into the driveway at 6.30, too late. You've almost missed dinner. You're exhausted. You come home. Who's paying for that misallocation of time that day? Your family. 
that's who's paying. And you're paying. And the church is paying because you're not really growing at that point. So is that a helpful way to think through yeah. that? No, it, learning curve. It's it's spot on. It's um, it's spot on. I've been shaking my head the entire time you've been talking because it's spot on. Um, <laughs> you were going to talk about. I, I interrupt you when you're talking about scheduling. Yeah, yeah, over scheduling. So this is really weird. Like when you when you do what's in the book, and you'll get a lot of free downloads. You can get them. We'll, we'll tell you where later. Uh, but you start plugging in green, yellow, and red zone. So green zone, again, your your best hours of the day. Red, red zone, when you're exhausted, you're caffeinated to even get through the hour. And then your yellow zone is everything in between, your mid-energy level. So you got that all calendared. Most people over-cram their schedules. So I think there's a meeting. And I'll walk you through an exercise in the book, and I'll, I'll do the short version of it now, where I think I think you have a limit of the number of meetings you can do. So I walk you through a couple of formulas. Let me walk you through this. Like how many, look back at your, if you look back at your calendar, Luke, let's do this as some live coaching. Look back at your calendar over the last two months. On average, look for your best weeks. You look back and it's like, okay, July 5th, that was a great week. Or June 17th, that was a train wreck, man. I was a mess. You look at your calendar, it's, oh yeah, I had this and then this blew up and that blew up, whatever. You're going to start to see some patterns because we're all pattern people. We're all creatures of habit. What I began to notice is there was a raw fixed number of meetings. And if I exceeded that number, I got stressed. If I went significantly under that number, I got bored. But if I was in that range for me of ideal number of meetings, I was kind of at my best. So if you look back, do you have any idea how many meetings are kind of optimal for you? Like too little, you get bored too much. You're like, I want to quit this job and do something else with my life. What, what, What's your number? Because I think it's different for different people. I know my number. Okay, so on the Enneagram, like there's the the three subtypes. And so I am the subtype where I am energized by one-on-one interactions, but like large groups, Got it. like large group meetings are just um, like not ideal for me is the nicest way to put that. Um, I don't like to Got say it. I'm... I'm a sexual seven, which is what the language is for that, but that just seems a little bit weird to me. So I'd rather just say like I'm energized by one-on-one interactions. And so if there's a week in which there's a lot of like group meetings where uh, like I kind of uh, follow the old adage that says if you want to get nothing done, schedule a meeting. Like that's how I feel about big group meetings. But <laughs> I'm I'm energized okay. if it's if it's a small group meeting. And so I could do a couple of those every day. Uh, as long as I still have my couple hours of writing in the morning and I could be fine. But if you're throwing like two, two or three days in which they're big group meetings that like seem to like just drag on, like I, I, like two, I think two a week is that big group number for me. Okay. See, this is super helpful. Okay. Cause now you're moving into categorical, categorical decision-making. So let's say, could you, could you seriously do like two one-on-ones that were energizing a day you think? Uh, yeah, yeah, I could probably do that. Okay. So let's say five day work week, that's 10 and then two group meetings. Yeah. Big group meetings. Okay. So you're at 12 for an optimal work week. That's really interesting. Now look at your calendar. Are you scheduling 12 ish meetings a week limiting? Cause if it was 12 big group meetings, you're like, ah, get me out of here. Right. Yeah. Um, my number is 12 to 15. If I have more than 15 items on my calendar, I get tired quickly. And if I look at it and there's 21 in a week, I'll tell my team, they already know. I don't have to tell them anything. They're like, 
this week's going to be brutal, just so you know, but we got to get you to book launch or we got to get you to this. Like, okay, but next week I got to make up for that. That is math. And it's so simple because our calendar is a real mystery to us. But when you learn your number and you got a rough idea how to do it now, and you look back on that and go, yeah, you know, I can do two one-on-ones a day and I can do two big group meetings. So then your assistant or your associate or whatever tells you, hey, we have like all these group meetings we have to do. That's when you put a flag on the field and say, hey, I, I'm probably only good for two a week. Mm. And then if you have to negotiate and they're like, well, honestly, Luke, to get through this campaign, we got to give you four a week. You're like, okay, but then I got to, something else has got to give. I got to take an afternoon off or I got to do this. So that's what, and then you start to schedule your ideal week. And you just know when your meeting is scheduled is at 15, you're full for the week. So you look at your calendar, you got Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday morning open, you got Thursday afternoon open, but you hit your meeting cap, you're done. And as long as your team knows that or the people who schedule you, then you're all set. So a lot of that is self-knowledge. And again, somebody listening might have a, a cap of 20. Others, it might be eight. But if you know that, then you can plan your week around that. And what that does, because I was having another conversation last week and someone said, man, there's just been so many emergencies lately. I'm like, dude, that is life. Life is an emergency. There's always stuff. I'm managing a backyard construction project like you know, the, the steps didn't show up. Uh, the table didn't show up. It showed up broken. They had to return it. Like that's life. We're like, we are living on this side of heaven. And the person who was going to meet with you, they said an hour, but they took two hours. And so now when you have all that free space on your calendar, you've hit your meeting cap, you're not past it. You've got margin, you've got your green zone scheduled. You've got some slack in the day to pick up the surprises. And then when you go home, you're like, well, I had those two hours that I was just going to work on this thing that isn't due right now, but the emergency took that up. Yep. You can take it up or you can punt it off. Or, you know, if you already offloaded the highly draining people to people that perhaps could help them. So it's those kinds of, of, of strategies that I think can really free up a lot of time and bring you home and bring you up in the morning, bring you home with a bit left in the tank so you can give your family your best. And then you wake up in the morning going, I already know what this day is going to feel like. And I've, I've had some really intense days. It's not like you'll never have an intense day. But because you have the system, the Thrive Cycle working for you, you then know this is going to be a meat grinder week. But next week isn't because I already built that in. So I, I can make it through seven days of this. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So the book At Your Best, uh, super helpful. Um, I, th there's one specific person I was just meeting with, uh, who's going to get a copy of this book and I encourage my listeners to do the same thing. Cool. Um, but, uh, the book super helpful. I really appreciate it. Kay, thank you so much, uh, for writing this and, uh, thank you for taking the time to, uh, to talk with me about it. Oh, you're welcome. Hey, and if people want to check it out, you can find it at yourbesttoday.com. Make sure you include the today. Otherwise, it'll take you to a whole bunch of carpentry and DIY manuals. But at yourbesttoday.com, we'll get you to a place. We've got a free masterclass for anybody who pre-orders and a bunch of other freebies that we threw in and, and invested quite a bit of time and money and heart into. So we'd love to help you with that. And uh, really grateful to be on with you today, Luke. Thank you. Outstanding. Great stuff. 